Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Alamo Draft House in Richardson for the season finale of season eight of Airtime. I will turn it over for some opening remarks to our illustrious executive director, Kitty. Thank you, and welcome, as David said. And I have to uh, thank, especially for this particular airtime, uh, Pat Fox, who serves as our first vice president for air, as she served as the coordinator for our, um, getting our illustrious artists here, Barbara Weinberger and Kurt Kleinman. I think you are in for a real treat tonight, and maybe you learn some behind-the-scenes theatrical secrets. But you don't have to share with everybody later. <laughs> anyway, uh, I hope that you enjoy the interview, and then I will have a few closing remarks at the end. Have fun. Thanks, Kitty. So as I said, welcome to the season finale of season eight of Airtime, which is presented by the Arts Incubator of Richardson in partnership with Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in Richardson, Texas. Airtime is an interview series featuring artists and creative thinkers in the Richardson and Dallas-Fort Worth area. Airtime is funded in part by the generosity of Eric and Deanna Wise of Wealthstar Advisors and through a grant from the City of Richardson Cultural Arts Commission. It is April 17th, 2018. Please help me in welcoming old friends of mine, our guests for this evening, Kurt Kleinman and Barbara Weinberger. Thank you. Thank you. Is this thing on? No, I just promised I'd say that. <laughs> so you have been a pair, if not a theater pair, for a long time. How did you get started in the, in the theater? individually, or were you a pair first, or were you a theater pair first? Well, uh, I started Pegasus Theater in October of 1985, and about a year later, Barbara came along as a volunteer. And Do I get to tell this part? Yes, you get to tell this part. Can I tell my version? Yes. All right, good. Um, Wait a minute. <laughs> So, uh, yes, uh, there's a whole story behind how Kurt started uh, Pegasus Theater, so we can get to that, and he can tell that part. But my part is that um, I did start as a volunteer about a year after Pegasus opened, and I was sitting in the house because I hadn't done any volunteer work, but they let me come to see a show for free, which is very cool. And I'm sitting in the house, and this guy walks on stage, and um, I know nobody believes in love at first sight, but, um, but I had, yay! I had a little Twitter in my heart, um, a little tingle that said, I need to get to know this guy. And one of the first things I learned about him is that he had a girlfriend. So it took a little while. This, um, this is her version. <laughs> I, I won't tell my version. Um, all I'll say is that a year later, we were a couple. And um, his girlfriend is thriving. No harm was done. Uh, but uh, yes, I, I fell in love with him uh, first sight. Top that. And for the other <laughs> side of the story. Uh, well, the other side's not anywhere near as romantic. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine and I, um, I was living in New York at the time, and he was in Arlington, and, and he said to me, he said, you know, the only reason we haven't opened a theater is that we haven't just said we're going to do it. 
So we said, we're going to do it. So I flew back to Dallas, and uh, my friend Mario and I uh, drove around and identified a couple of places in Dallas that we were interested in. Uh, we were specifically interested in Dallas. And uh, uh, found a, a space in Deep Ellum on Main Street and opened uh, Main Stage Theater, uh, did Private Lives by Noel Coward, and Mario was the artistic director, I was his managing director, and about four weeks into that show, he just decided that temperamentally and physically he wasn't fit to be running a theater. Uh, it was causing him all sorts of health problems. So he decided to close, and I decided that there was too much effort had gone into creating the space to let it just go away. So I reopened it as Pegasus Theater and rededicated the mission to new and original comedies. And then a year later, Barbara came along. Thank you. Yes. So your background before Pegasus started was in the theater? Oh, yes. Yes. I... I I th essentially majored in theater in junior high. Uh, He's one of those lucky, pe I think they're lucky people, who sort of like were born knowing that they were meant to do something. I, I would normally tell people I tried out for my first play in the seventh grade and just never stopped. There you go. There you go. Yeah. And what was your first play in the seventh grade? The Man Without a Country. Ah. Yes. And I played, what did I play? I played the older man without the country. They split the role into two. So. Now, Barbara, did you have a background in theater or were just an arts aficionado? I, I really think arts aficionado. I, I, uh, I don't think that, um, you know, like playing a tomato in the parade of vegetables counts. Uh, so that was kind of my sort of background prior to that. Um, and in fact, what I uh, had intended to do is volunteer work at theaters and I, uh, for the sole purpose of seeing plays for free. And so I did this at theaters across the city and I was allowed to pour Cokes at one theater but not take money. And I was allowed to usher people to their seats at another theater. And at Pegasus Theater, I uh, showed up and they said, um, would you manage a project with uh, two dozen volunteers to redo our entire seating area, please? <laughs> and I thought, this is different. This is, a, this is not exactly what I had expected. Um, and it went from there. Now in 1985, what theaters were here? Uh, you had Undermain, you had Pegasus Theater. Theater 3. Theater 3, Dallas Theater Center, Dallas Repertory Theater, mm -hmm. Stage Number 1. Theater New Garage. No, yeah. the, oh, the, Theater, theater garage, garage was later? Theater Garage came a year after we started. Ah. Um, and let's see, who all else? Uh, the Dallas Black. Dance Academy. Mm -hmm. Probably uh, Jubilee. Jubilee. Mm -hmm. uh, Probably, uh, was Cora producing? Oh, it? yes, yes, Teatro. Teatro Dallas, yeah. yeah. 
So a fair bit. So you're all, many of them still around. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, talk to us for a minute about the mission of Pegasus. How is it that it came to first give us a little more detail on what it is that Pegasus does and uh, how you came to that? Okay. Well, our, our mission is is that we, as a theater, we're devoted to the production and development of new and original comedies. And what do I do? No, oh, not holding it close enough? Okay. New and original comedies. And uh, uh, want to take over? Sure. <laughs> we tag team things. So, uh, yes, new and original comedies. And that doesn't mean that we don't have tremendous respect for the classics. Uh, and there are people who do those very well. We just find that we're very excited about doing new work to the extent that while we have done some um, reprises, if you will, of, of uh, shows that we've done in the past, um, we actually don't have as, as much fun doing those as we do brand new works. And uh, uh, I, I, think, I think the way that Kurt uh, approaches new work is, is really interesting. You mind if I tell them that? No, go ahead. All right, good. So, uh, so a lot of times people will ask, I'll observe people asking Kurt um, how he writes the plays. And uh, so it depends. Like if you've ever written anything like an essay or, <clears throat> I don't know, we may have authors, book, book writers out there. Uh, if you've ever written anything of any length, you know that there's a certain amount of time when it's in your head and you aren't actually putting uh, fingers to the keyboard or uh, pen to paper. And so that period of time could be very long, could be a couple of years. Um, but the actual writing of the play um, has become very disciplined. And so what I observe is that at the beginning of November, um, Kurt sits down and says, I have to write X number of pages per day. And um, in the morning, I wake up and there are X number of pages waiting for me to read. And so I have the privilege of reading them and, and uh, uh, laughing at the good parts and frowning at the other parts. And, uh, and she does very little frowning. <laughs> it's true. Uh, and, uh, uh, but uh, I, I, get to, I get to give some feedback, and that's a real pleasure. Now, are you reading them out loud? No, no, uh, I, I read them to myself, but I have to wait until uh, he's watching me because he is extremely curious about any form of feedback. So if I, you know, it's, it's like being at, a, at an auction and you twitch an eyebrow and you've just bought an oil painting. It's like that. You know, if I, if I make any movement, facial tick at all, he wants to know why. Now, what, now which came first? Your uh, appreciate the, the, the mission that Pegasus do original comedies or your love and talent for original comedies? Oh, I, I, I think the, the mission came second. Uh, the mission was, a, was sprang out of, of my uh, affection for comedy. Um, and I, I think, not to get too psychological, uh, but I think uh, I, I was, uh, growing up, I tried to make my father laugh. Uh, and I, I think that's where I started developing a facility for comedy, uh, soaking up, you know, the, the Jack Benny and the Bob Hope and the uh, uh, Red, Skelton. Red Skelton, all of those guys, uh, the Marx Brothers, uh, and uh, just processed that in my own filter and 
let it go. How old were you when you wrote your first play? <sighs> 22, I think. So primarily an actor before that? Primarily an actor. Uh, I actually wrote my first script as a vehicle for myself because <laughs> I was living in New York at the time and uh, the audition notices were incredibly specific for what they were looking for, uh, you know, because in New York they can, they, they can be that way. They can say, well, we're looking for, you know, Lithuanian dwarves who speak Spanish. And they'll find some. You, you can't do that here. So I wrote something for myself. And, and then uh, eight, eight years later, ten years later, no, eight, eight years later, we finally put it on stage. And so, so um, I mean, just with the struggles that any theater company has with uh, finding a space and keeping a space, you had a, a, a good long run uh, at, on Main Street. So tell us about how that came about. How was Deep Ellum different uh, in 1985 than it is now? Uh, Deep Ellum in 1985 was probably uh, in the minds of, at least in the minds of the audience, was, was a, 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 a lot sketchier than it is now. It's been very gentrified, I think, in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, we were there from 85 to 2002. Uh, the, we only moved out because the landlord that we had had on a handshake agreement for 17 years sold the building. And he had originally offered it to us, and he offered it at a, at a, at a very good price, but when you don't have $250,000, it might as well be $250 million. Uh, it would have been, I, I don't know if it would have been a good buy or not. Uh, it's the quiet section of Deep Ellum that we were in on Main Street between Washington and Haskell. And uh, you want to you wanna pitch in? Sure. Uh, so the, the quiet section wasn't quiet during the day. There were actually about 40 businesses um, that were along that stretch. But nobody who came to our theater knew that because they were all things like machine shops or um, if you're familiar with the Dallas costume shop, it's down in that area. Oh, I think something's changed. Yes. Our, our photo. Yes. So this, this is Gen 2 of Harry and the Lady in Red. Um, we uh, we played those roles for 30 years yes. and uh, yes. turned it over to uh, a, uh, a very handsome, slightly younger couple, uh, and uh, and so they will they'll carry they're carrying the tradition forward. So this is full color photo, uh, unretouched, and uh, and this is what we call the amazing color demonstration. So this is what the audience sees at the end of every uh, black and white show. And we do these, these shows every January, and they are affectionate uh, parodies of old black and white movies from the 1930s and 40s. Uh, and so when I, I wrote this first script in, in a series, there are now 19 of them, uh, when, we came, when it came time to present it, uh, I was asked, well, how are we going to do this? And I said, well, let's do it in black and white because it's a parody of an old black and white movie. And to complete the parody, 
let's present it in black and white. Well, there was no manual to consult, no textbook, so we had to create that world. And uh, it's an ongoing process to uh, uh, make the makeup better, uh, stronger, more durable, easier to apply, faster to take off. Uh, and this is a, a photo of the most recent production that we did, a minor case of murder. Um, and um, sometimes yeah. I don't I don't know if it's true in this particular case, but um, sometimes your move your see I almost called them movies. That's a, that's funny. All right, uh, they're not movies; they're plays. Uh, so, but sometimes your play titles are reflective of a clue. Yes. Uh, to the to the murderer was that the case with this one? Um. Really? Yeah, I didn't. Not I, really, I thought this no, one was no. not so much. A, a yeah. trifle dead, cross stage right die. The early ones. Death yeah. take one. I had more of a tendency to put a clue in the title. Yeah. Uh, now less so. Okay. So tell us about. I mean, obviously, fabric can be gray. Um, makeup can be gray. How do you make light gray? Oh, that's a very secret process. <laughs> It is, it is true that it, it is the whole package. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, and we really, we, I'm, we really can't tell you, not without having all of you sign a non-disclosure <laughs> agreement. Well, and, and, and it's called Living Black and White. It's called right? Living and Black and trademarked. White. It's trademarked. That's correct. And we, li we like to say that it's not just, it is the things that are part of the physical production. Mm -hmm. So lighting, uh, the costumes, the props, the set, um, but also the sound mm -hmm. uh, is of the period, and then um, the acting style is of the period. And so what, what we find is that sometimes we get actors who audition for us, and they're extremely talented, and they have a very contemporary way of, of walking, very contemporary way of speaking, and they don't, they don't understand the period. And so, um, so we're, it's, it's a, a shame because we don't have time in the four or five weeks of rehearsal to actually uh, teach that. And we've talked about actually holding a class uh, so that more actors, you know, have, have an opportunity to be part of it. But we're very fortunate in that there are many, many uh, talented actors who do indeed understand the period and seem to love to come and put that makeup on. So, How long does it take to do the makeup? The first time you put on the makeup, we advise actors to take, to allow two hours to put the makeup on and an hour to take it off. Now, once you get, once you get used to the process and know what you're doing, you can get the process down to 45 minutes uh, of putting it on and about a half hour to get out, uh, depending upon what level of, of out of makeup you want to go to. They, they, we present at the Eisman Center and they do have showers available, but some actors decide, I'll just take one when I get home. And, and, and hope they don't get stopped by the police. I hope they don't get stopped. Because it's really frightening to see an actor half in and half out of this makeup. Yes. Yeah. Now, has anyone else duplicated or franchised, or have you taken this anywhere else? We did authorize, um, uh, I forget what it was called then. Uh, 
you're talking about the makeup technique, right? And, I'm, and I'm talking about Irving. Oh, oh, uh, what the theater was called. Well, it's, yeah. it's what is now uh, main stage Irving Las Colinas, but uh, Irving, uh, ICC, I think. I, yeah, I think so. I think so. they were called ICC. In, in any event, we, we licensed ICC. them to do two of my shows in The Living Black and White back in 2004 and 2005. And uh, I guess that really sort of demonstrated to us that the appeal of the black and whites was still there, even though we had been away from Dallas for a couple of years uh, as far as productions go. Uh, and uh, we saw the audience came out to see the show at Irving and thought, you know, we could give this another try. And, and so I went and I, I wanted a theater that was on a dart stop so that people could ride the train to the show. And the Eisman Center was available and right there at a dart stop, Gallatin Parkway. And it's gorgeous. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to go, but it's just a beautiful, beautiful facility. And, uh, um, and uh, great support staff, so we've really been lucky. So the, uh, the shows all center around uh, Harry Hunsacker and Nigel Grouse, is that? Yes. So tell us how they came about, how they were invented, how okay. you were, what inspired them? All right. Um, well, as I said, I was living in New York at the time. I was attending the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, which is a theater school in New York. Uh, and I got a very bad case of bronchitis, so I was spending a lot of time at home watching television, and they had a marathon of the old Sherlock Holmes movies was with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. And having read the original text by Arthur Conan Doyle, the interpretation of Holmes, and particularly Watson, in those films just really annoyed me. Um, because it, it, it was a perversion of what, of what uh, uh, Conan Doyle wrote. Uh, but what the movies presented was the world's smartest man palling around with the world's biggest idiot. So I decided to reverse the situation and make the world's biggest idiot the detective and the assistant would be the world's smartest man. And that's how those two characters came about. And then there's always... Uh, the character of Lieutenant Foster, who's a, the real police, and there's the source of friction between he and Harry, who is a world-famous detective and aspiring actor, as he proclaims, between he and Lieutenant Foster, who represents the real police, between the amateur and the professional. Uh, but this was the era of the 1930s of the gentleman detective, such as Charlie Chan and the Thin Man, that sort of thing. So that's where those characters came from. Now you played these. You played Harry for many, many years. I played Harry for thirty-one years. Now, what was it like to let that one go? It was actually, um, for the most part, it was actually fairly, fairly easy because I, we had planned for five years that transition, and. Uh, so we started out with Scott Nixon as my understudy, and he would do Saturday matinees. And then we expanded him to Saturday matinees and Thursday nights. 
And then we did where we, we, the next show, we had him do two weekends, the whole two weekends. Uh, so we just sort of gradually phased him in so that the audience wouldn't, wouldn't be presented with an abrupt change. And now there are people who, they never saw me, they've only seen Scott. So for, for their money, Scott is Harry Hunsacker. Now, Scott would tell this story a little bit differently. <laughs> yes. Yes, because um, so Scott came to audition for uh, one of the black and white shows and um, thought that he was auditioning for a, one of a number of, of roles. And um, in one of, towards the end of the audition, uh, the director asked him to read Harry's part, Harry Hunsacker's part. So Scott did, but he phoned it in. He, it, like he didn't, it was, he didn't even try. And so um, Kurt went up to the stage and he said, this is for real, you're, you're auditioning for Harry. And so Scott, I think had a minor heart attack <laughs> at that, I think it's called an infarction. Uh, and um, so he, uh, anyway, uh, he did then put his all into it and it was as fabulous as we expected it to be. Um, and then, um, we, I got the opportunity to call him and tell him that he had the role of uh, Harry Hunsacker's understudy, and um, he uh, asked if he could post it on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes, he he was. I think flabbergasted was invented for that moment. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, circling back, do you have a favorite uh, interpretation of Holmes and Watson? A favorite acting pair? I, I'd say the most current uh, example on BBC of Sherlock with with Benedict Cumberbatch mm -hmm. and Martin Freeman is, uh, even though it's been updated and modernized, it's tremendously, I think, faithful to the spirit of what Doyle wrote. Uh, the crazy I, eccentric and the yes. smart but kind. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and they've done a, a wonderful job of updating the the stories and weaving in uh, all of the 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 Holmes trivia. So I'm very very happy with that series. So uh, 17 years at, of Pegasus, it wasn't all black and white. Tell oh, us no. about some of the other shows and projects you worked on. Uh, well, let's see. In the 17 years that we were on Main Street, we did a hundred and... A hundred and some. It was just over a hundred. Just over a hundred plays. Seventy percent yeah. of which were uh, area premieres or world premieres. Uh, and the black and white was only one-fourth of our season in those days. Uh, we did. We were the first theater to present Charles Ludlum, the first theater to, in the in the area to present Charles Bush. Uh, I think Nikki Silver. Nikki Silver, Cynthia Heimel. Yeah. So we so we have fond memories when um, someone does do something by Ludlum or Bush or uh, and and tout it as um, as a really wonderful thing, and it is a wonderful thing. And, and, and we can be forgiven if we say, yeah, we, we did it first. Uh, but, uh, but it was fun. It was fun to bring new works to Dallas. Um, so in the, in the middle of all of this, this 35, 33-year span, yes. you went away. 
and yes. people thought you went away, but then you came back. So yes. tell us about your, uh, your sabbatical. Well, uh, we were still on, in the space on Main Street, and I got a phone call, I got a phone call from uh, uh, an old set designer that we had used who was living in New Jersey. And he had interviewed with a guy for a position of set designer in New York. And the guy was so taken with his with uh, the set designer's photo of his set for one of the black and whites that he asked uh, he asked him to introduce him to us, and he did. And Cole, uh, our New York producer friend, came down, uh, saw the show, fell in love with it, decided that he wanted to present one in New York. Uh, and it, the timing worked out that we were losing the space. So we thought, well, that'll free us up to go to New York. Uh, so there's a positive in that. And so we took a show called It's Beginning to Look a Lot Like Murder for a limited run in New York uh, off of Union Square. In a, we were the second production in a new space called the DR2. Uh, and uh, it, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, we were there for three weeks and uh, just had a blast with the, the actors in New York. Uh, and uh, then we came back and considered possibilities such as a, a Texas tour or whether or not we wanted to try and open our own space again. Uh, but for that period when we were figuring out what we wanted to do, that's when we licensed Irving Community Theater to do um, the black and whites. And uh, so I, I understand that people thought that we had moved away, but we hadn't. We were just lying fallow. And if you want, oh. if you want to read all about our New York adventure, I think it's still on our blog. Is it? I think it is. Okay. Yes. I, I wrote, every week I wrote an installment and I sent it to people who had said they were interested and then we put it out on our website, on our blog, and there was always a section about um, uh, life in New York because we had sublets for us and some of the actors that we had brought with us and then there was a section about theater life in New York. So the section about life in New York had things like um, the study and contrast. I'm trying to see if there are children in the room. Perhaps we should skip that story. <laughs> um, at any rate, there, it's interesting, and you can go read it on our blog. So I left the bathhouse in 2006, but then you came to the bathhouse shortly after that? 2009 was our first production at the bathhouse. But that was with... Church Mouse. Church Mouse as a part of the FIT Festival, which is redundant. Festival mm -hmm. of Independent Theaters mm -hmm. Festival. Um, and uh, Church Mouse was, was created. We created Church Mouse with the idea of helping our audience understand that the show they were going to see was not in black and white because people have a strong association of the black and white with Pegasus Theater. So we created Church Mouse to say, this is not gonna be black and white, it's gonna be something different. 
It's going to be more like we used to do in the old space when we weren't doing a black and white. And um, we were almost too successful with the name Church Mouse because people thought that we had created a whole new theater company as opposed to a branding item. Uh, so we had people thinking that we had we had broken up into two theater companies, and that was not the case. So we, we decided to shelve Church Mouse because it wasn't accomplishing its goal uh, anymore. And uh, But we did four, five, four or five years of fit. Uh, right and as Church Mouse and and Church Mouse had some main stage productions too. Yeah. So yeah, for about four or five years, Church Mouse, and then we were um, we we ended up with uh, gosh hundreds of these beautiful T-shirts with a mouse on them that had no relationship whatsoever to to Pegasus Theater. So, but they were really adorable. We ended up uh, donating them to a charity and. So somewhere, there's an entire seniors facility of people wearing mice <laughs> t-shirts. So, uh, so now that Pegasus is reunited, is now whole, um, tell us about your current season, your projects, okay, uh, including the, the big one that's coming up. All right. Uh, we now do uh, four shows a year. We have the big show, the black and white that we do at the Eisman Center, and then we do three other shows during the course of the year at the Bathhouse Cultural Center in Dallas on the shores of White Rock Lake. Uh, we do uh, one show, it's, it's a, we brand it as Radio Vision, and what it is is we take one of the black and white scripts and we present it as if it was an old radio program complete with sound effects guy and the microphones and all of this, and uh, then uh, in, and that's in March. And then in May, we have uh, something that we call Fresh Reads, which is a new play reading festival. Uh, we have three plays this year, uh, and that, uh, that's, that's a lot of fun. Uh, and then in August, we'll present A Proper Man by Stephen Young. Now, A Proper Man was actually the winner of last year's Fresh Reads. We, I, I thought the script was so good that I wanted to present it as a full production, so we're doing that in August. But the big thing coming up for us right now that's getting a lot of focus is called The Cuban and the Redhead, which is an original musical that we'll be presenting in September about Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. And it tells you the story of what leads up to Desilu. So it tells you a story that you're not familiar with about two people you are familiar with. Uh, and we're looking forward to that. And then, of course, we'll have another black and white in January. The Cuban and the Redhead is just sort of an extra show, a lanyap for our season. Yeah, just a little bitty hundred grand <laughs> well, production. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, what's, what's really. Um, fun about it is that people do have this nostalgia for uh, Lucy and, and Desi and Kurt uh, was able to be in um, two of the early readings of this so even though it's a brand new uh, musical that's never been produced before uh, it has had a couple of readings so we're very familiar with it and just love the work 
And what sort of delicious insights do we get into the Cuban and the redhead that would surprise us that we don't know or have not seen before? Well, you learn a lot about Desi's upbringing and his relationship with his mother, which was very important to his life. And you get information about Lucille Ball's relationship with her mother uh, and the early days of Hollywood and how they meet and, uh, and how they develop a relationship. And then, of course, the trials that Lucille Ball went through to get Desi Arnaz approved to be in I Love Lucy as her husband. That's, that's covered. It was a different time. Yeah. So looking back over 33-plus years uh, of theater in Dallas, uh, what do you see as some of the high points or low points or fun points? Wax nostalgic for us for a moment. Is that mine? Yeah, that's yours. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, Kurt is uh, past president of the Dallas Theater League. So this is leading to something. I'm not just bragging on him. Um, and the Dallas Theater League was one of um, several attempts there have been to uh, collaborate amongst the theaters in Dallas. And one of the things that the Dallas Theater League did is present the Leon Rabin Awards. And um, they were uh, fabulous and horrible at the same time. Um, and so they were fabulous in the result, right? Because uh, people came together and um, celebration of theater, and it was always fun to win, win awards. Uh, but behind the scenes, um, it was um, a lot of politics. And so as Kurt does so often with his plays, there will be a kernel of truth in, uh, in his plays. So, so he took his frustration out uh, by writing Another Murder, Another Show, and, uh, and he got to uh, make um, the producer of an awards show a murderer. <laughs> Aren't they all? <laughs> so so that, was, that was sort of a highlight and a low light because it really was wonderful to see the collaboration that did, that did happen, um, but it wasn't perfect. That's yeah, what, I'd, I'd, what I'd go got? along with that. The, that the, the, the beginning of the collaboration was, was good. Uh, I still think there's a, a need that could be filled. Uh, and I'm hopeful that somebody else will come along and give it another shot. Well, and actually, there is an effort to... Uh, Rafael Perry is leading an effort to... Uh, you're very familiar with this, I'm sure. Um, to get uh, common, just common storage space and common rehearsal space and props space and... Which was, which was one of the goals of the Dallas Theater League. We had a bunch of goals, but the only thing we could ever get people to commit time to was the Leon Rabin Awards. Yeah. I guess the other thing that I've noticed is that um, the proliferation of theaters, and it is, um, we, we are huge believers that we do not compete for audience out there. If you look at the percentage of um, the uh, uh, population in the DFW area that actually attends live theater, you can't possibly believe that we're at tapping into the entire audience. And so until, you know, people talk about, well, 
there's only so much pie there and you have to split it up. Make and the pie bigger. Make the pie bigger. Well, exactly. or teach people to eat pie. <laughs> exactly. I mean, people yes. come to movies all the time every night of the week, but such a, few, such, such a smaller percentage come see live theater. So it's kind of like we have to teach the world to eat pie. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. I, I guarantee you, if you like old movies, you will like black and whites. Yes. <laughs> and where can we buy tickets? You can buy tickets uh, through the Eisman Center. <laughs> they, um, they'll be on sale in September for the next one, September right? or October. Yes, but for the Cuban and the Redhead, they'll be on sale in June, so there you go. That'll be at the Eisman, too. And your next, you have a production in May at the Bathhouse? At the Bathhouse in May. That will be Fresh Reads 2, and we've got three brand new scripts, three brand new comedies, just ready to go to be seen by the public. We have a few, few more minutes. Any questions from the audience? Yes. Not everybody at once. Um, we actually thought of that a lot. We, we thought of it a long time ago, but here's what happened. Um, we, so people would give us helpful suggestions, things like licorice, which black licorice turns purple in your mouth. And then we found this food color that was great, except it made the actor sick. You know, and if you're going to be picky about stuff like that, I, I just think you're not committed. Um, but we finally found some that, uh, that something that did not make the actors sick. Uh, and uh, so it took a while. It was 30 years in the making. <laughs> questions? Any other questions? Advice from one of your uh, longtime colleagues, Ben? Yes, Mr. Bryant, certainly you have something to say. <laughs> that was helpful. <laughs> Good. Well, we will finish up in an airtime, traditional way okay. with our top ten lightning round questions. Okay. All right. Top ten lightning so round. I will give you a question or an either or, and you both just give us the first um, answer that comes to your mind. It doesn't okay. have to, we don't have to collaborate on this, right? No, no, okay. no, in, you're in, you show your individuality. Okay. Ah, And maybe right. your synchronicity, if you answer for each other or at the same time. All right. Question number one, pie or cake? Pie. pie. Number two, Rolling Stones or the Beatles? The Beatles. Beatles. Number three, Eiffel Tower or Empire State? Empire, Empire State. State. Number four, your dream vacation spot? New York City. Yeah, New York. Number five, the movie you've seen the most times. Oh, we're going to differ here. Zardoz. Uh, uh, the Long Kiss Goodnight. Hmm. Number six, your favorite comedian of all time. Jack Benny. Jack Benny. Number seven. We have been married a long time. <laughs> Number seven, Wizard of Oz or Gone with the Wind? Oh, Wizard, Wizard of, of Oz. Oz. Number eight, which if you were paying attention, you answered earlier. The first vegetable that comes to your mind. Tomato. 
potato. <laughs> you say tomato, he, he says, says potato. potato. <laughs> Number nine, the first Disney character that comes to your mind. Snow White. Mickey Mouse. Number 10, Abbott and Costello or the Three Stooges? Three Stooges. I'm going to have to reconsider our relationship. <laughs> All right, Abbott and Costello. Everyone, please help me in thanking Kurt Kleinman and Barbara Weinberger. And thank you for all of your support throughout this whole season of airtime. You've been marvelous, wonderful, dedicated audiences. I will turn it back over to Kitty to close us out. Thank you so much. And I don't know about all of you, but I'm, after this, I'm going to go home and read that blog. I want to know those details. Anyway, thank you again, Barbara and Kurt and of Pegasus Theater for uh, the insights and sharing. It's obvious that you have a great passion for what you do, and we really appreciate that. And if you've never seen one of their productions, you must attend. Learn to love pie. Before we leave, uh, this Saturday, AIR is sponsoring, in partnership with Church of the Epiphany, a pop-up art event it's at the church, and there are some flyers, postcards back there uh, from 10 to 5. Regardless of weather, all the artists are inside, so please come by. It's free for the art. Um, as far as viewing, you can buy what you want. Uh, $25 a ticket for the crawfish boil or $30 the day of. So we hope you will come and see some of the other things that AIR does. Um, also, I wanted to... Um, I made notes so that I wouldn't forget. Um, this is season, the final airtime for season eight. And it's unbelievable to us that we have been hosting airtime for five years now at Alamo Draft House. So we were here from the very inception, and we are so grateful for their partnership. I also want to thank the Richardson Cultural Arts Commission for their funding the Air Board for all of their insights, planning, and support, um, and also our tech guru, Chris, who makes sure everything happens on time, and Kathy Tran, who is our award-winning photographer and takes great pictures. If you haven't seen some of them, go to, go to our website. And uh, Liz Conrad, who provides all of our graphics for us, she does a stellar job and is also on our advisory board. And Susan Yost down here, who serves as our social media director and has just done a fabulous job. We appreciate all of you. And before I forget, the last thing is that um, if you have never been to an airtime before, and this is your first one, they are all audio recorded and then are podcast on iTunes. So if you've missed some or just want to go hear Barbara and Kurt again, um, that one will take a week or two to be up there. But anyway, uh, go check out the podcast, Airtime, on iTunes. And there are more than 20 up there right now. So uh, please go check them out. We would love for you to listen. And finally, thank all of you for being here. I hope you really enjoyed the movie. And we will be back in September for the beginning of Season 9. And I have one question. Oh. She thanked me, but thank you all. Anyway, enjoy the movie.